Amen. Our Bible reading this morning is taken from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20. We're going to read verses 1 through to 12. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 12. Let's hear the word of God. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 12. Reading, of course, from the authorized version. And after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. And there abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he proposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia, Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus, and Trumpheus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came into them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in the window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell in him and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again, And had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day. So he departed. And they brought the young man alive and were not a little comforted. Now this morning, my text is taken from Acts chapter 20, verse 7. And my theme today I've entitled, How Best to Keep the Lord's Day special. Now Acts 20 verses 1 to 6 records a summary account of the Apostle Paul's ministry on his third missionary journey. Following on from the riot in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul takes his leave from there and departs for Jerusalem. But instead of taking the direct route, he travels north into Macedonia. He visits the churches there, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. He he spent three months amongst them. Later he comes into Greece. His plan is to sail across the Aegean Sea for the Mediterranean coast. His plan is abandoned once he becomes aware of a plot to murder him. So he retraces his steps. 
and returns to Macedonia. That's what we read in Acts chapter 20, verse 3. And there abode three months, and when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he proposed to return through Macedonia. Now, Paul's associates accompanied him into Asia. And they went before him and, and abode at Troas. Five days later, the apostle Paul arrived in Troas and stayed at seven days. And listen to verse 6. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days where we abode seven days. Now that brief summary... Acts 21 to 6 is only a part of what took place in Paul's third missionary journey. And you have to think of the time span here. You have to think of Paul traveling thousands of miles. Think of Paul touching base with many congregations. He had been under God instrumental in seeing them established. And during that period of this third missionary journey, he wrote his second letter to Thessalonians. He wrote his second letter to the Corinthians. He, he wrote his great theological treatise uh, to uh, the uh, church of God uh, who were encamped at Rome, namely the book of Romans. And he also faced ill health. Uh, certain Jews again for a number of times tried to murder him. He, he dealt with pastoral problems. And yet through it all, he revealed his commitment to the work of Jesus Christ. Why travel thousands of miles? Why visit these cities? Why go to these particular churches? There's one answer. The sacrificial service for Jesus Christ. Out of love for him. In light of the Savior's sacrifice for him. Out of love for Jesus Christ. Remember Paul lived for Jesus Christ. And because he loved Jesus Christ, he did what he did. He said the love of Christ constraineth me. Now the rest of the chapter from verse 7 through to the end deals with his time at Troas, chapter 20, verses 7 to 12, and then what happened later at Miletus where he met the Ephesian elders again. Two great events. Now today I'm going to focus on just what happened at Troas. Look at verse 7. Let's read the words together. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech upon midnight. Now, Acts chapter 27 records a New Testament church as it meets on the Lord's day. That's what it's about. Here's a gathering of true born-again believers for corporate worship of the living God. And here's the activity that takes place when they meet together. Here we're discovering what takes place in Paul's day when God's people come together for worship. See, there used to be a slogan in Ulster, keep Sunday special. I think the late Dr. Paisley was behind that campaign. Fifty years ago in Northern Ireland, Sunday was a quiet day. Peaceful. Restful. People all over this province flocked to the house of God, especially on Sunday morning. And they came together to engage in an act of corporate worship. And I long to see that again right across Northern Ireland, irrespective of the denomination. Sunday was the day for corporate worship. Now, 50 years on, for many, Sunday is no longer special. It's not a day for corporate worship. 
People are no longer flocking to the house of God. There's a marked change in Northern Ireland. It's a day for shopping. Go down to Forest Side. It's a day for sports. Go to the beach. Go to the lake. It's a day for selfish pleasures and pursuits. Drinking. Gambling. Fishing. Working. It seems that this present generation has so much more time for leisure, but less and less time for God and the things of God. There's no longer a marked attitude to keeping Sunday special. Sunday is no longer regarded as, if I put it this way, the Christian Sabbath. Now certain, sadly, so-called evangelical churches preach and pride themselves in preaching that Sunday is no longer the Christian Sabbath. They reject the fourth commandment. They say it doesn't apply today. Now I want to say that's, I believe, the devil's lie. I believe that's a falsehood and an error. I believe that's utter rubbish. If you go back with me and look with me at the book of Exodus, let's just read the fourth commandment, Exodus chapter 20. Familiarize yourself with the words. Listen to verse 8, right through to verse 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why does it start with the word remember? What does it mean the Sabbath day? It's not the seventh day. The Sabbath is a day of rest. Remember the day of rest to keep it holy. You should read it that way. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Why? Look at verse 11. Here's the answer. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that in them is, and rest at the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The core subject concerns the day for worship. And the interesting thing is, when we come into the New Testament in Paul's day, in the first century, they had a corporate day for worship. And it was the first day of the week. You see, the Seventh-day Adventists teach that Emperor Constantine changed the day for worship. I want to tell them he didn't. Because the day for corporate worship was set already in Paul's day in the New Testament. And it says, and upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. Now here's Paul at Troas, and it's the Lord's day, the first day of the week. And what did they do? They assembled for corporate worship. Now, three or four things let me just bring out to you for the time that we have. I want you to think of the pattern established to sanctify the Lord's day. Think again of Troas, the people of the area, the town, the countryside. Has to be there's individuals saved Followers of Jesus Christ, individuals who profess to know and love the Lord, testify that they're born again of the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? Well, look at the text. It says, the disciples came together. Now, now we'll just pause there. Notice who came together. The disciples. 
Where did they come together? Well, they were at Troas. Here's one of the cities, the towns in Macedonia. We're given an insight here as to to what actually took place. They they came together. The word together is very significant. It means they were led into union. In light of their saving union with Jesus Christ, in light of the fact that they're born of the Spirit and washed in the blood, they came together as as, as one band. They, they, they came together because God was their father, Christ was their redeemer, and they were born of the Spirit. The Spirit of God indwelt them, and they came together as one band. They had a band of fellowship with each other. They had one heart, one mind, one purpose, one will. They, they, they were um, dominated by the thought of coming together to worship God. They took the worship of God seriously. I want you to think of a specific people. The disciples. And ask yourself, am I a disciple? Am I saved? Do I know and love Jesus Christ? Is he my Lord and Savior? Think of a specific place. We're thinking of Troas. And what has happened in Troas is happening today all over the world. Like it did in the first century. And you've got a a, a specific people coming together for a specific purpose. to, To meet with the Lord. A people coming together to meet the Lord and to worship him. Now notice something else here. There's a specific period. It says, and upon the first day of the week. I want you to underline that. Special mention is given of the time upon the first day of the week. And I put it to you that that's the Lord's day. How do we know it's the Lord's day? Listen to what John tells us in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice. And over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, here's what's happening now. Paul's instruction as he writes to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 Verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do you. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Paul is thinking of the church meeting for corporate worship. And as part of that worship, there was a giving of their a portion of their income to the Lord's work. We'll call it tithing. We'll call it voluntary donations. Do you get the picture? But note the reference to the first day of the week. Now in the New Testament, the first century Christianity, in Paul's day, the early church established the principle of observing one day in seven when it come to corporate worship. And they met for corporate worship on the first day of the week. Now, there's no dispute. Acts 20 verse 7 is about the assembling of God's people for worship. And I put it to you this morning that this principle that they were establishing or this principle that they observed this one day in seven goes all the way back to creation in the Old Testament. 
The gathering of believers for public worship necessitates a certain day. The New Testament church met for worship on a certain day, the first day of the week. Here's the converts at Troas, the converts at Galata, the converts in Corinth, the apostle John in AD 90. I was in the spirit in the Lord's day. Now the New Testament is clear. They did meet on the Lord's day, not by tradition, not because they thought it was a good custom to establish, not because they thought it was a good idea, not because they had nothing else to do. I believe they were following a divine example. They were following a divine command. They were setting aside one day for corporate worship. And that one day was rooted and based in the will of God. You see, I believe this morning there's an obligation for corporate worship on the Lord's day. And I believe that that day is universally binding on all men. I believe that day is perpetual because God established it in creation. And I believe that day involves a moral obligation. And that makes it wholly relevant to us. If it was instituted at creation, go to the book of Genesis. Listen to what we read in Genesis chapter 2. Let's read verses 2 and 3. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he has made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rest from all his work which God created and made. Before sin came into the world, before there was a need for redemption, there was the institution of the day of rest. The institution of the Sabbath. That's what the word Sabbath means. Like the institution of labor, marriage, fruitfulness, the Sabbath day was given for a sinless man to enjoy for his good and his benefit. It's a creation ordinance. It's not out of date. It's not irrelevant. It's not unnecessary. It hasn't been done away with as certain churches teach because it's a creation ordinance. And it was instituted at creation by God. And it rests upon a divine example. Genesis 2 and 2. We could link up the words as we have tried to do there in the book of Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter uh, 20, and in the verse uh, 11. Uh, if I'm right in reading it out to you again, uh, it says, For in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Here's six days of labor. Here's the sequence now. And one day for rest. Do you get the picture? And that's God's pattern. Ask yourself this, young people. Why did it take God six days to create the world? Why not just create them all in one second? One minute? Why not just will it? Why, why not just speak the word? Here's the answer. Because God was establishing a divine pattern. Six 24-hour days for labor. And then God set aside one day in seven. That's the seventh day. For a day of rest. A day for man. A day for his benefit. A day for worship. He created man on the sixth day. What was man's first full day? 
It was a day of rest and worship. God had ordained it. God had instituted it. God had made it. It's not a Jewish institution. It's not a church institution. It wasn't um, made up by Paul and others. No, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. God instituted it by his example. If you turn over there to the book of Acts, or sorry, the book of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 2 and verse 27. Mark chapter 2, verse 27. The Lord Jesus said this, and he said unto them, the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. I want you to think of Badam in his unfallen, sinless state. He's made in the sixth day, and God calls him from his work of attending the garden to attend to a day of rest and worship. The word Sabbath means a day of rest. So that we might know God, meet God, worship God, honor God, love God. Why did it take six days? Because God was personally teaching man the pattern what he's to do. Six days for labor, legitimate earthly occupation. One day set aside for the Lord. We could certainly say this morning, oh the goodness of God. Is mankind not greedy? God has given him six days for labor to pursue his pursuits. What does he want? He wants the seventh day so that he can also do his pursuits and fulfill his labor. He, his attitude is, but it's my day. It's my time. And the Lord comes and says, it's not. The Lord comes and says, it's mine. Remember, John, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. It doesn't belong to me. It's the Lord's day. Let's ask the question. Has the fact that God rested on the Sabbath day, has it ceased to be relevant? Has the divine example become obsolete? Let me just press something home to you very quickly here. The fourth commandment, as we have read it, Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, is summarized in the Ten Commandments. It's not an appendix. It's not a mere application. It forms part of the whole. And you've got ten commands. And the first four have to do with worship. And that's one of the most important subjects in the Bible. Here's the first command. I should have no other gods before me. God alone is to be worshipped. Not angels, not creatures, not people. True worship is exclusive. There's to be no one before or above or put in the place of the Lord. The second commandment, worship God's God's way. No idols. No images. Don't produce anything. Don't propose anything. Don't proclaim anything because God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The third commandment, God's name is to be reverenced. There's a wide application. He forbids hypocrisy. Does the Lord Jesus not teach this people honor of me with their lips but their hearts is far from me? How many assemble in the Lord's name and they, they honor the Lord with the lip but, but their heart is far from him? They have no real heart for God. They don't love him with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. Then when you come to the fourth commandment, here's the day that God is to be worshipped. Remember, that's recalled to mind. It was established before he ever given this law. We could prove that from Exodus 16 in the collection of the manna. We could prove that even in the heart of Adam. Here's the day for worship. Remember the day of rest. For it is holy. Remember the day for rest and worship. Not remember the seventh day. Remember the Sabbath day. 
and it applies to all men. And I believe that that command, like all the other Ten Commandments, is universally binding. It's for all men. It's perpetual. It covers all ages from creation to the end of time. And it's a moral command. It's not a day for self. It's a day for the Savior. And in the New Testament era, the principle was established, a day for God, a day for worship. And here's the first time in the New Testament it's specific. One day for corporate worship. And I recognize that as the Christian Sabbath. I recognize that as Sunday. And the interesting thing is it's connected to the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the day for corporate worship was changed from the seventh day. That was the day for the Jews. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead. A New Testament Christianity in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the churches met together to worship God in light of redemption, in light of resurrection. And they set aside that one day as being special. And they suspended other duties, even legitimate duties. They stopped their work. And apart from acts of mercy and necessity and piety, they set aside that day for the worship of God. And they didn't treat it lightly. They didn't treat it in a cavalier fashion. They didn't say, oh, it, it doesn't count. No, to them it was special. They understood it needs to be kept, that it must be holy and sanctified unto the Lord. It's different from other days. The catechism asked the question, how is the Sabbath to be sanctified? Here's the answer, question 60. The Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful in other days, and spending the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship except so much as is taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. If you're a true Christian, you'll turn your back on shopping on the Lord's day. You'll turn your back on sports. You'll say, I have six days to go sporting activity. You'll turn your back on doing work. We have no list of do's and don'ts in this church or in the Free Presbyterian Church. We call upon those who have a love for Christ, a note of loyalty to him and a desire for to living for him, to take the command to heart and to keep Sunday special, to keep it holy unto the Lord and to observe it along with others. Do you not live in a day when there's a wide-scale breaking of the fourth commandment? A wide-scale rejection of God's example at creation? A wide-scale rejection of God's command to remember the day of rest for worship, to keep it holy. And God is offended. God is grieved. And I want to tell you, God is grieved with pastors and elders and people in evangelical churches who teach that it's okay to break the fourth commandment because it doesn't apply. They've understood little of what the fourth commandment is, how universal it is, how perpetual it is, how morally binding it is. The first century met for corporate worship. Not only the principle that's established to sanctify the Lord's day, but I want to think something else very quickly here. The people excited to sanctify the Lord's day. Now, if you go back to our text, it says there, look at it, the disciples came together to break bread. How many? We're not told. What were their ages? We're not told. We can imagine men and women and children, young people. 
Look with me at chapter 20, verse 9. It says, And there sat in the window a certain young man named Eutychus. Now notice the word, a young man. And this young man fell out the window, coming near midnight. Long service. Longer than we would have in the morning or at night. So you can at least be thankful that it's not on to midnight. This young man, they reckon, commentators, anything age seven. So if you're age seven in the house of God, God bless you. Thank you for coming. We want to encourage you to come. If you're here 14, we want to encourage you to come. Because this young man was somewhere between the age of seven and 14. Here's a boy with other believers. And he's attending with others. You see, the young and the old came together. If you turn over there to Acts chapter 21 and um, look with me at verse 5, it says, And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way, and they all brought us out on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. Here's Tyra and the church there, husbands, wives, and children, whole families in the place of worship. And that's a practice that we should strive to maintain. The church is not just for old people. It's for young people. It's for children. Children are welcome. Young people are welcome and wanted. They're a vital part of the church. Here's a people gathering willingly, voluntary, not forced, not driven, not bribed, not compelled. It's a voluntary act. They came together, willing to give of their time, willing to set aside their work, willing to say no to sin, willing to come together because they have a desire to be there to worship God. And that's an important part of their week. And it's critical, it's essential we understand that. Remember the Apostle Paul said this, listen to Paul in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, and he says this in uh, verse uh, 24. 425 and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching the fellowship of God's people not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together if you're a true believer and you love Jesus Christ and you want to live for him you'll have a desire for corporate worship You'll have a, an eye and an ear for the Christian fellowship of God's people. And I want to tell you, that's not valued today. Many people say, I can survive on my own as a Christian. I don't need Christian fellowship. I can live without it. I don't need the corporate worship of God with his people. Such people have a poor view of the Lord's day. They have a poor view of what a Christian is. They have a poor view of Christ. Is it not a sign of ill health? Because true worship is gathering with others to love and adore and honor and obey and serve our God. And I want to tell you such thinking, not only is a sign of ill health, but, but it's, it's not Christian. It's not in line with the will of God. It's sin to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Not only the principle established and the people excited, but, but think very quickly if the practice enjoined in the sanctity of the Lord's day. What did they do? What was their activity? Look at the text. And upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, 
Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow. Here's what they did. They, they, they sanctified the Lord's day in their heart and mind. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, they set this day aside for the Lord to meet for corporate worship. What did they do in that day? I believe that one of the things that they would have done is they would have sang a hymn. It mentions here, came together to break bread. And as Christ's customs was, that before they actually had the breaking of bread service, they sang an hymn. And remember, we sang deliberately this morning from Psalm 100. And um, this is what it says. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Praise is important. Not only that, but prayer. And we have two prayers in this house. We have a prayer of thanksgiving. And we have a prayer of intercession. And remember what the apostle Paul taught Timothy I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. And that's important that we have that. I want to tell you there was giving. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2. I want to tell you there was preaching. And that's mentioned in the text. Paul preached unto them. That was central. There was a focus on the preaching of the word. It's not outdated young people. It's not boring. It's not something without growing. There has to be the primacy of the word. The people valued the word. That was their main activity. They, they looked forward to the word of God. Now Paul was a long time preaching. He preached right up to midnight before this wee fella fell out the window. If I kept you here to midnight, there'd be a few cross people and I would understand that. I would probably be exhausted myself. But these people so valued the word that as Paul preached on... They stayed and they listened, even the children, even the young people. I say this to you, if you're looking to find a good church, you put an emphasis on a church that sanctifies the Lord's day by the singing of praise to him, the offering of prayer, the giving of gifts and thanks, but central to that act of worship is the preaching of the word. Preaching of the word has fallen on hard times. There's a problem today in many pulpits. Why? Because there's a failure of the preacher to, in an expository fashion, preach the word of God. Many have become cold and careless. They give little stories. No problem with stories or illustrations. But, but where is the command of Paul in 2 Timothy 4 and 2? Preach the word! Sadly, many have itching ears. They've no appetite for the word. They, they, they refuse sound doctrine. Don't give me something that makes me think. Don't give me something that challenges me. Don't, don't make the preaching of the word a prayer. I, I've known churches where the Bible has been thrown out. It's no longer read. It's no longer preached. This is wrong. This is sinful. Here's the central act in the life of the church. There was the preaching of the word, even if it was long. And it's not only a problem in the pulpit, but it's a problem in the pew. May the Lord have mercy. Another activity was the celebration of the Lord's Supper. They came together to break bread. That's a reference to the um, institution of the Lord's Supper. 
They were remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that was their focus. I believe that when Paul preached first, his primary focus was to uplift the personal work of Christ in his death and resurrection. The theme of redemption and the theme of resurrection. Here's the practice enjoined. That was their activity. Now let me finish. Think of their assurance just as we close. I want you to think of this scene, midnight A sleepy teenager falls out of the window and he dies. Focus is on verse 8. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. What does that mean? Had they any electricity like we have in the first century? No. What does it many lights mean? It means many torches were lit. So you've got to think of, of oil lit lamps, right? And they give off a certain fume. They, 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 they would, they would um, stifle the air in that sense. And Paul was long at preaching. And um, this meeting place is three stories high. And the oxygen has been used up. And this wee fellow falls into a sleep. He falls out the window and dies. Could you just imagine the scene? The horror of mummy and daddy. Other people there. What did we call him? Eutychus has fallen out and he's dead. The shock of it. The service being interrupted. Well, Paul goes down and falls on him, embraces him. Even though he's dead, he ticks him up. And the wee fellow's alive again. The life comes back into the young man. And it's a miracle. It's the Lord's blessing. And what assurance does it give to that congregation? It gives this. The Lord is with them. See, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Not only is the Lord with them, but the Lord is working amongst them. Here's life being given to someone who's dead. And is that not a picture of the gospel? Is that not what the power of the word does that's quick and powerful? It takes that which is dead and trespasses and, and by the Spirit makes them alive unto Christ. Is that not evidence that the Lord is at work? And then you've got the Lord's witness. In this problem situation, even though it's late at night, the midnight hour, I am here. I'm at work. I'm witnessing that I'm the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And it's not our need in the 21st century. It's not our need in carried off FPC to know the Lord is with us each time we meet for corporate worship. To know the Lord is working amongst us, among the children, the young people, the boys and girls. That the Lord is witnessing his power. Oh, that's what we need. Manifesting his presence. Is the Lord amongst us? I believe he is. And here's this, how to keep the Lord's day special. Establish the principle in your mind. Get excited about coming because you're coming to meet with God, even the children. let's, Let's engage in this practice. Singing, prayer, the word, giving, um, uh, the Lord's Supper and, and baptism. And let's have this assurance that the Lord is at work amongst us. May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to us as I've sought to preach this this morning.